The talk is about uh, dukkha and joy and serenity. The tulips in the garden, uh, some of them are starting to look almost like a, pr- a prayer. They're, they're closed up, but they look like some of them are about to open. And um, that metaphor of self-realization as being like a, a flower but opening is, a, is really a beautiful metaphor when you're here at Hollyhock in the spring. So I think that um, no matter how much we might know otherwise, that we like the idea of opening a lot. And we tend to think that if we're going to open, that we're only going to get to open to the good stuff. Like that, that would be a good deal, wouldn't it? (laughs) You know, it would make it so much easier if that's how it worked. And when we close... It would be great if we just closed to the pain, right? And not to the joy and the good stuff. So the hard part is that the deal is is that when you open, you open to the range of joy and sorrow, pleasure and pain. And when you close, you actually close off to the joy and sorrow and the pleasure and pain. Often at this point of, of the retreat, we tend to, you know, we'll remember that and, you know, then we'll forget. It's like it just seems sometimes like a bad joke that, you know, it's both. And we see in many ways how afraid we are of life, you know, because it's like life is alive and we don't get to pick and choose what is gonna, we're going to open to. It's like the weather. <laughs> it's like we can't control the weather. Some people think they would like to, but doesn't really work. This, um, there's a few paragraphs I want to read from Srinazargadatta Maharaj about love and self-realization. He said, when you know beyond all doubting that the same life flows through all that is and you are that life, you will love all naturally and spontaneously. When we understand, we will love. It's natural and spontaneous. When you realize the depth and fullness of your love of yourself, you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. And again, we, you know, it's like we're emphasizing so much that the Buddha taught that we love ourselves the most. And if we can really connect with that, that that will lead us to loving all beings. But when you look at anything as separate from you, you cannot love it, for you are afraid of it. Alienation causes fear, and fear deepens alienation. It is a vicious circle. Only self-realization can break it. Go for it, resolutely. Go for it, (laughs) resolutely. 
So because this is a Brahma Vihara course, loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity, we're not talking as much about dukkha, but we have been talking about it. And the in the mindfulness retreats, we tend to be emphasizing more that when you pay attention to your present moment experience, that there are three universal truths that we are meant to understand and not understand once. We're meant to understand them on deeper and deeper levels. So the first truth, anicca, impermanence, is considered to be the first um, really fundamental and important insight. Basically that anything that takes birth in the universe will pass away. Anything conditioned is impermanent. And it is said that because of this, you know, that because of impermanence, there is dukkha, the second truth. And it's very important to remember that relationship between impermanence, anicca, and dukkha, that they're totally related. So that if we get that everything, every moment, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, thinking, it's changing every moment that that something appears at our sense door. Then the next moment is different, and the next moment is unknown. The next moment is unknown. It's because of this change that there is and then here come the translations, you know, because there's usually an attempt to paint this with a number of words, but usually it's called unsatisfactory or unreliable. You know, it's like, it's vulnerable. Because what could be more vulnerable? than never knowing what's going to happen next and never knowing what's going to happen next. So we've, we've talked about this before in the retreat, and of course we're saying that when we are disconnected from these truths is when we suffer the most. It's like you know that feeling of surprise <laughs> when something happens, like when you think it shouldn't happen, but it happens. And this is where the Brahma Viharas uh, and, and wisdom are so important to intersect because we'll start to feel as we do it that love should protect us from getting hurt in any way. But it can't. It's like when we say, may I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm, or may you be safe and protected from inner and outer harm, it's that deep wish for yourself and another. Uh, But it doesn't mean that you can control with it. It means that on the deepest level, the inner harm is greed, hatred, and delusion. So the, the more you understand that the harm inwardly or outwardly is being motivated by greed, hatred, and delusion, then the deeper the wish, the deeper the metta. And uh, the third truth, anatta, atta means self, anatta means um, 
that no matter what experience you pay attention to, if you are really pay attention to a sound and your attention is right with it, we call it concurrent. If there's nothing between the sense of a you or me and something like the other sound, but if it, in the moment your attention is right with it as it's happening, or a body sensation, if the attention is right with it as it's happening, um, that we will see that, that experience is actually quite insubstantial. That there really isn't anything um, lasting or solid there to call a you or a me or an us. It doesn't mean that <laughs> we're saying nothing's there. We're saying that it's so impermanent, it's moving so fast, that it's very insubstantial. So we, we really emphasize that these practices complement each other because, again, the, the, the experience of loving-kindness, not the intellectual experience, but that deep experience of loving-kindness uh, means that there is the understanding that we are that interconnected, that there really isn't anything between us and the sound. And there really isn't anything between a me and a body sensation or somebody else's or a smell or, you know, the taste. It's like, it's only the, um, we're misperceiving. We're just misperceiving. And in a way, you can describe it as a kind of jet lag. You know, we're, we're just not concurrent. And, and that's partly why we get so quiet, because if you try to pay attention even to the rattling, if you, if you pay attention, you'll see that actually the attention is often behind. It's, it's like a, the, 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 the sound is actually a memory from a few seconds ago. Uh, and it's quite profound to, to actually see how present we are by just checking. That's what I usually do with a Vipassana, you know, sitting is, or even at the beginning of metta sometimes to see if I'm really still and quiet is, I'll just find any old sound, the rattle is a gift, because I'll just see, is my attention with it, or is it behind, with our breath? Right now, we're all breathing. Our hands, is our, if our attention goes there and tries to be with the rising movement of the breath, is it behind or right with it? This is, this is so much of the practice. It's like just not judging if we're behind, but seeing that there's this possibility of being with it just as, it, as it's moving. Because everything's moving. And fast. So part of this ability to be concurrent means that we actually can be here and receive life without anything, again, between us and what's happening. And there's... where we're not perceiving ourselves as separate. And in this, just this, just practice, it could be that you're with a sound or the breath or stepping, walking or listening to the wind. 
And, you, and we do it a thousand times and a thousand times more and there's no realization. And that's fine because that's how it is. That's how much patience it takes. And then sometimes something just happens. It's like uh, this morning when I was uh, walking outside for the first time today, there's a sparrow. I think it's a song sparrow, but it might not be. It might be another name. Um, But since coming here for so many years, there's a certain day where the sparrows come back. And again, I'll call it song sparrow, but it could be some other sparrow. But it's such a beautiful song. Um, And usually it arrives in this one particular apple tree every year. And, you know, I also realize that this could be you know, the great, 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 great granddaughter or son of the first one I saw. In fact, that's how it is usually. That we, we forget how related everything is, not just us and our families or cousins. We move around so much as modern people. But originally, you know, it's like, everybody knew how related they were because you would get it. You would get that they were all cousins and great-greats, you know. So the sparrow comes back and I hear the song and having having, um, grown up in the north and, you know, you survive in Massachusetts, Maine, you survive six or seven months of winter and that song is powerful. You know, you hear it when you're six months old before you have words for it. You hear it when you're three months old. You know your your parents have heard it, right? Like, it's like it's not just you, but there's a whole, such an um, interconnectedness. And when I start thinking about it, that isn't the same is when you, you first, there's, you know, it first touches your ear and you have that feeling that goes right through your cells and your bones. And it's like there's just a deep knowing of relatedness. But again, it's like so powerful. So the moments when, if I started to go, oh, I remember the time <laughs> when I first heard that song, you know. That isn't what I'm talking about. That might happen with these things. But this this is very different than that wordless connection in that moment, in the present moment. And of course, for me, that's very pleasant. And then maybe the next... <laughs> Two seconds later, there was the feeling of the wind, the cold, cold (laughs) wind. And um, the director here told me yesterday that it was going to be sunny today. (laughs) And and so, you know, all this is what's so amazing is that life is so alive, right? So within about ten seconds, there was the song sparrow, there was the receiving the cold. For me, it's very cold. (laughs) <laughs> it's un- it was unpleasant. And then there was a memory of him saying it was going to be sunny today, right? And then, you know, how do we stay in balance with all this? This is like three or four seconds. I could have gone off in any one of these for like 20 minutes. 
In fact, that's what we call papancha. It's, a, it's like papancha is that there's one moment where we connect and then whew, we're lucky we come back in a half an hour. It's a thought about the thought that thinks about the thought that thinks about the thought. And we're saying what we're doing here is anytime you catch yourself doing it, see if you can just stop it. Begin again. Come back. It's a training. It's that we're training ourselves to be in this just being place. You know, and I saw that place of like, he said it was going to be safe. So what? You know? <laughs> a big deal. It's cold. It's windy. It's rainy. It's cloudy. Doesn't look like it's clearing. Yeah. And then just being, seeing if there's the ability to be with nothing between the idea of a me and that coolness, temperature, air element, wind. So mindfulness is present time awareness, present time awareness. And if there's thinking happening, and it's happening in the present moment, you just see if you can be aware of thinking, not lost in the thought, but you, it's like a stepping back and going, ah, ha, 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 thinking. You have to have some space with it because it's happening all the time. And because it's happening all the time, and just to remind us, the ear hears, the nose smells, the tongue tastes, etc. That the mind thinks. It's it's like if you relate to thinking as an organ, that it's just that's what its job is, you know. And then you start to get, oh, how can I work with this well? Well, most of the time, the attention needs to be out of here. <laughs> it needs to. It you need to train the attention to not be in this area so much. Because if it stays in this area, the thoughts are so close. Really, there's no space, and they suck you in like a vacuum cleaner. Really. You know, it's like, ah, you know, you, you try to find a way, open up the attention and be more out. You go, as Steve is saying, you know, go into your body more. Because then... It's much easier to be anchored away from that thinking. And that's, you know, it's like the more you learn to do that, then the more the thinking isn't as hard to work with. There's more space. But mostly it's, again, it's a training to go, ah, just thinking or simply thinking. And if it's kind of incessant, it's like, ha, 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 ha. And it goes from being very oppressed by thinking when we, when we start learning how to do this to gradually getting more space with it. It's possible. I've experienced that. It's amazing. It happens. It doesn't seem like it ever will because it takes, it takes a lot of patience, but it does happen with, with, with just putting in your time. So the the sense of like learning to have this more of a embodied feeling awareness versus like lost in our conceptual awareness, it, it literally just means starting again. 
And, you know, it's like coming down, coming out, when we're walking. I can't tell you how much just being with the bottom of my feet when I'm walking has been the most helpful practice walking. Look how far the bottom of the feet are from thinking. Really, it helps. It really helps. Hands, bottom of the feet, hands, bottom of the feet. Knowing you're walking, but including your whole body because it helps anchor. And the word anchor is so important. The word anchor means that the, the typical human mind is like, like a boat lost at sea. And an anchor means that the boat has been steered into the harbor and it's shallow enough to throw the anchor in to stabilize. So the more you learn to stabilize, the more you can be out at sea. And the more, you know, the more that the attention knows that it can let go and just let go. You let go of the conceptual. You really drop in and trust and see what happens. And then when you find yourself lost in a lot of thinking, you re-anchor. In the metta practice, that might mean going to the benefactor, going to yourself and coming more to your body. It might mean bringing in the phrases if you're getting really spaced out. Or trusting that the spacing out is happening and just coming back to abiding. But I want to mention that, you know, mindfulness, when, we, when we're needing the mindfulness as another skill, anchor of just, just being in the present moment, we need that a lot in the metta practice. That the kind of basic aspect of mindfulness is, is, is receiving and recognizing what's happening. So it's like when you walk from here to the lodge, you would just know that you're walking. You're recognizing you're walking. And we can kind of joke about it, but it's hard to do that. We get lost in thought so quickly, right? And if we're not able to maintain the loving kindness or for anything, and we're struggling, you don't have to give up. You can be aware of your physical sensations. Not the conceptual thought about walking, but really being with just movement, the, the, the touching of the ground with the foot, not the thought, ground, or foot, but just feeling those sensations. Just like now, if I asked you to be with your hands. There's the word hand, and then there's this indescribable, wordless, present moment changing. And it could be that we might try to say instead of hand, well, maybe there's heaviness or coolness or warmth. You see, you can, you can add some words in that are less, less conceptual than hand, but even those are conceptual. But they can help us be more in what is real than just the word hand. So recognizing what's happening, it's like being able to recognize that hearing's happening or recognizing that thinking's happening. That's like, I think that that is 50% of the battle of being here. 
it's that significant. Disappointment is happening. Great. What does that feel like? Just like if you explore hand, free from the past concepts. Disappointment, what is that? It's the same thing as the word hand. What is, what does our body feel like? Maybe there's some thoughts that gave us a clue that we could give it that name. But then, again, it's just concept. And, and it's that shift from that primal feeling awareness and being lost in the thoughts about it. And this takes practice. You know, if you find yourself kind of off and running, just go, ah, ha, 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 you know, thinking, great. Just that starting again, starting again, starting again. So acceptance is the next, you know, the recognition, receiving what's there, and like hearing sounds, and then acceptance rather than resisting I could, you know, of course, go into these a lot more, but it's like if disappointment comes up, it's like usually we're like, oh no, versus, oh boy. (laughs) Acceptance. Interest. You know, that it's it's a genuine feeling, and of course... Sometimes, whether it's joy, are we, are we interested in the enjoyment, or are we off thinking about the enjoyment? You know, that's hard. This is why it's said that the opening up to pleasure and pain, opening up to aliveness, it's like we don't know how to do it with joy or sorrow. You know, if we, if we get, if we are excited or enthusiastic or joyful, we tend to get lost in our thoughts about it too. I mean, I just, for me, the most important place I learn about this is with sadness, because sadness as an emotion is relatively easy for me to open up to. But I find it so intriguing that even with sadness and a lot of practice, when sadness comes up, I'll, I'll try to talk myself out of it. The, the thought pattern is, well, why are you sad? You know, this isn't, there's nothing to be sad about. That's not, you know, it's just like hearing that old voice, you know, I'll give you something to be sad about. Wow, right? You know, it's like, it's like, golly, you know, all, all there is is this sadness. There's no reason for it. I can't find a reason for it. It's just, there's melancholy. But I'm saying that there, for me, there is still that way in which it'll come up and I'll go, I shouldn't be feeling this. There's nothing to be sad about right now. It's like crazy because it's there. And it's like not even hard. It's relatively easy to just go, <laughs> you know, and just, I mean, I mean, I can act it out, but it's like, oh, sad. And just like, it's like, you know, it's like, what crime is it? Like, why are we so afraid of it? It's, it's really interesting, right? And then when I can get to that place where it's like, oh, wow. <laughs> this is, this is just, 
wow, can I drop into my body and let this be there? And you see, these things will always pass if you let them live. Everything is impermanent, and if we repress it, it doesn't stand a chance to be impermanent. It just we just crush it in somewhere, you know, in our poor bodies, you know. It's like <laughs> we get mad at the places in our bodies that are tight, yeah. It's like this part of my body, you know, it's like it's a it's a sacrificial area. And I hate it because it's tight, right? And here it is holding all this stuff for me because I'm not willing to feel it. But it's like an just check it out. Look at the places of your body you hate or don't like. They're the parts that are holding all this stuff for you. So it's like it's like kicking a horse when it's down. It's like you know, it's like you know, stuff being tight. And it's like but I'm like I'm protecting you from the mental hospital, you know. That's what, <laughs> that's what's really happening. You know? But no. <laughs> no. Interest, the genuine interest, not in how we think we should be or how our body should be, but really, like, it's that just being. Just being. Just being. It's like so foreign to us. You know, it just isn't getting airtime. It's part of it is that it's just we we haven't learned how to do this, you know, and it's like we might do it for a few seconds. We get afraid. We're thinking about it again. It's okay. It's just that the intimacy, intimacy with how things really are takes interest. And how it really is often scares us. And often it's kind of boring. You know, that's what's also so funny. You know, a lot of the body is neutral. But because we're not willing to, like, really check it out, it's, it's, we miss it. We miss that there's a lot that's pleasurable, we miss that there's a lot that's neutral, and we miss that there's plenty of unpleasant. And what we call pain is the word really will trip us up, because if we can think beyond that word pain or reflect that, let's see what it is without that word, it's often interesting. Tight, burning, throbbing. You know, there, there are hard, you know, those are the ones we tend to think aren't okay. Light, vibrations, tingling, you know, those kind of sensations. You know, we'll, we'll, they're okay. <laughs> when I first came to meditate, my first retreat, I realized that 99% of my experience wasn't acceptable to me. And it was daunting. Really daunting. I was like, oh, <laughs> I think I got a little work to do. You know, that's a lot. That's, that's a lot of resistance. So when you see that something's happening and you start, you know, in your body or your mind and you start getting a little space and you start getting interested and you find yourself gone, that's how slippery 
the resistances. And, you know, it takes a great respect and a great reverence for the resistance because that's all we had to protect ourselves. So it's learned. We've learned it. We learned it. It's passed down through generations, and it's okay. It's totally okay. It's just resistance. And it's like learning how to let that be okay. That's the real art. The more you can let your system go, <clears throat> uh-uh. <laughs> I'm not going there. You know, then it's like, oh, okay. It's not about ripping the petals open. It's about listening to your system in a very deep level. And when mindfulness is truly there, the recognition, the receiving, the acceptance, the interest, and then the last one, non-identification. Not taking it personally, not thinking that that tightness refers back to an I or a me. You know, that we're not taking it personally. When those are present, you can explore anything. And it, if we taste that, we want it to happen all the time. And we'll step on the gas and we'll scare ourselves versus seeing how deeply healing mindfulness really is or mindfulness of metta. Metta is mindfulness of metta. Remember, it has mindfulness in it. That when that's present, it's like, again, we would have to say, of course we get attached. You know, it's, you can feel. It feels wonderful. It's like we know we've come home. It's like a homecoming because we can be here. We are here in the present moment, home. It's it's like, it's worth it. It's worth all the ups and downs. And when you get that, you get that it's like we need to, the training on how to be here. Hmm. Hmm. It's so seductive to try to figure things out intellectually. You know, so when you find yourself doing that, I I have a little label for it. I just call it figuring it out mind. If you're interested in this, then of course you get caught in it. You know, it's like you're out doing walking and you find yourself figuring out everything in the universe once again, right? It's like <laughs> it's like 2,225th time today. I've been that's what I that's what I do. I just say, "Oh, 3,225." <laughs> Great. Okay. It it is that seductive. Uh, and it, it takes that humor, and then you just see if you can just be again. So we tend to use that figuring it out mind so we don't have to go through life. You know, it's like, it's that ambivalence. It's, it's learning that we're, we are actually quite ambivalent about being here. <laughs> 
how did we get here, you know? <laughs> did we really consent to this in the first place? You know? <laughs> Somehow we're here, but, you know, it's like, so it's, again, respecting the ambivalence. We want the connection so much, and then it's like something hurts, and we're like, I didn't agree to be the here, right? It's like, we, and then we go off into thinking about it. So the unconditional acceptance of vulnerability is the relief. It's that deep relief from the suffering when we when we connect with it that deeply. And then it's joyful. That deep delight in exploring the truth whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And that's how we get a true non-judgmental attention, is when there is that equal interest in pain, pleasure, and neutral. Because that's how life is. So we have to keep remembering that we're, you know, we're not making this up. <laughs> you know, this is how it is. Wanting more from your practice than what's actually happening in the moment destroys connection. Trying to figure out what's happening intellectually will destroy the connection. Feeling no good and worthless because it's not going our way destroys the connection. And we do this not just with ourselves, we do this with other people. We do this with our friends, you know, everything. It's like when we're with somebody, it's like the agenda, the expectation, the assumptions, you know, that, that ambivalence again about just being with. It's powerful. That's what, you know, just coming in this hall and sitting with each other, don't under- underestimate the power of it. Just being, and just being with other beings. It's such a beautiful way of life. And not having to have our personalities chattering away, and then, you know, reacting, responding to other people's personalities, and wow, but we're with each other. As I get older, I feel like I'm more aware of just like, we are all just sitting together, you know, walking together. It, it's really um, profound. And there's so many things that happen that you'll never get to tell anybody. Today I went, you know, the the wind, the roaring wind sometimes drives me to the orchard. And it's like, why wouldn't I want to go there anyway, right? But I tend to stay on this side of the land and then I'll go up there. And today, I don't know if you've been up there, but there's a cherry tree, an old cherry tree in bloom. And if you stand there, you know, the, the, the grass is just covered, not totally covered, but there's a lot of petals on the on the emerald green. It's like these 
pink-white petals. And if you stand there for a while, one petal falls down at a time from the tree. It, it's just exquisite, you know. And um, how can you... I can't tell you about this, really. I can indicate that it was extraordinary, but there's such a difference between being with something and trying to describe it. It never, it never can be the same, yeah? And just like a 45-minute sitting or an hour sitting, you couldn't go home. First of all, very few people would be interested. <laughs> so that sense of like, not having to even describe it to yourself, right? Because a lot of our thinking is actually talking to ourselves. So that ability to kind of go, okay, I'm here. You don't, I don't, you don't have to tell me about it. <laughs> or at least let's, let's have a moment of, um, one minute of silence. <laughs> So pure exploration is that it's like that's what brings about this joyful interest. It's when we can really... Of course we have an agenda. And of course we have assumptions and expectations. That's not, that's not what we're saying. It's being able to see those and see if we can be here without them anyway. Or not let them take over. And then there's usually a sense of wonder... I don't know. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to read something that is really the other half of the brain, that um, very mythical, from a story as sharp as a knife by um, Robert Brinkhurst, and it's it's his attempt to translate. The Haida Gwaii myths. And this is from part of a story that I won't read the whole thing, but um, that this human man took a, a female goose, a, you know, for a wife. And she she came to his village. It's a it's really beautiful. And he came he came to she came to move in for with his village. Um, but it didn't work out so well. <laughs> so she left and then he just sobs and sobs. He loves her so much and they love each other, but they're they come from different worlds and so he decides to go off to try to find her and it, he has to go through all these amazing different worlds and tests and so he's um you know basically meeting different animal beings but they're really spirits they're gods and goddesses that he's meeting but they're mice and ferns and this is the world we used to live in right that we've forgotten all our relatives you know that we used to live in so here we go So somebody just, some strange being has just told him that this is the trail that leads to your wife. Again he set off. 
After walking a while, he saw a, smile, he saw a small mouse in front of him. There was a cranberry in her mouth. Then she, came to, then she came to a fallen tree, and she looked for a way to go over it. He let her step onto his open hand and put her across. She laid her tail up between her ears and ran ahead. Not far away, she went under some ferns. He rested there, and something said, A head woman asks if you wish to come in. Then he parted the fronds of the ferns. He was standing in front of a large house. He walked through the door, and there was the head woman dishing up cranberries. She spoke with grace. Her voice had big round eyes. Once she had offered him something to eat, Mouse Woman said to him, When I was bringing a bit of cranberry back from my berry patch, you helped me. I intend to lend you something that I wore for stocking prey when I was younger. She brought out a box. She pulled out four more boxes within boxes. In the innermost box was the skin of a mouse with small bent claws. She said to him, Put this on. Small though it was, he got into it. It was easy. He went up the wall and into the roof of the house, and Mouse Woman said to him, You know what to do when you wear it. Be on your way. (laughs) Hmm. Interconnectedness. You know, I'm not going to try to tell you what that means, right? (laughs) But it goes in, right? Just the knowledge of the mouse, right? Just the the, the culture that knows the mice so well and has a mouse as like a Buddha, right? You know, this is really important for us because it's like we, we lose the respect, we lose the love, we lose the, the gratitude. So I find one of the reasons I really love retreats is because I find, I find those connections, whether it's with an ant or an eagle, or it's like that sense of nothing between me and them, and uh, the the power of that. It's it's like it's restorative. It, it's so important, you know. It's like sometimes I don't know if you know the oyster catchers, but they're the blackbirds on the beach with the big long orange beaks, and they make a racket, right? <laughs> you know, and I think sometimes, wow, this year there's a few. What if with some year we come here and they're not here? You know, this is the world we live in. It's like, oh, you know, to value these other beings as much as ourselves or, or more, you know, this is some of what we hopefully will learn on retreat. Hmm. 
talk. There's a book called The Windshift Line by Rita Moore, and she's a BC writer. And her father um, was a botanist. And he did a lot of exploring in the Hudson Bay and the um, Severn River in northwest Ontario. And he used to go out two months at a time in these remote areas back in the 50s, 1950s, <laughs> and 60s. Uh, and she was looking through his journals and when he couldn't like get to some area because it was just so remote and they couldn't portage the canoe and you know it was very difficult exploring these areas he would write in his journal little opportunity was attended little opportunity was afforded to study the features of this area And then um, she thought a lot about this when she saw it in her journal, his journal, and she said, uh, I would like to say this in my life whenever I cannot make my way in, when I can't delve or understand something. Little opportunity was afforded to study the features of this area. (laughs) So I'd really like you to remember that when you have a place in your body that is just impenetrable or a place in your mind that, you know, that resistance is so thick or, you know, these deep karmic knots, that's the nature of them. There's a learned resistance to them. You know, anywhere that you find that, and then in others, it's like, if you can remember, little opportunity (laughs) was afforded (laughs) to study the features of this area. You know, it's like, it, it gives some space again. It gives some humor. And we don't have to. In fact, we we really shouldn't be exploring these areas if there's no mindfulness or metta. Because we can't. It will be aversion and attachment exploring them if mindfulness or loving kindness and compassion aren't there. So it's best, rather than to go in and just be there because we want to get rid of it, that's just reinforcing aversion. It's not exploring it. There's an agenda. And, and just be honest about it. It's like, okay. I had this amazing case of shingles um, end of October, November 1st. I mean, one of the worst cases uh, this doctor had seen. It went in my ear. And and then I had post-herpetic neuralgia. That's uh, when after the, it disappears, you get this intense nerve pain. Um, and I had it November, December, January, February, four months, very intense <laughs> nerve pain. Uh, and I went on retreat. And for two weeks, I didn't bring my attention in there. Because I was just wanting it to go away. And so that I knew I shouldn't go in there. And it was totally okay. It's like, of course I wanted it to go away. It was excruciating. And I didn't have enough mindfulness. Or, you know, and two weeks into the retreat, this compassion happened. It was like, oh. It was like there was enough energy finally. And it's like, I know enough now. 
that it's better not to go in than to go in when that's not there. And, you know, just to remind you, there's plenty of other places to be. I didn't need to be in those places, but I knew, I knew if I sat long enough that there would be enough energy at some point and that I would be able to start doing it. And when I did, it started shifting. Now, I didn't, if it didn't shift, that would have been how it was. And I would have had to need equanimity with it, unconditional acceptance. It's that unconditional acceptance. You do the best you can, and then you let things be. If you have the mindfulness, you have the compassion, you have that, just go in. And if you go in a little bit with these chronic areas of mental, emotional, or physical pain, check it out. You go in a little bit, and then come out. That's what the anchor is for again. The anchor is for coming back to something more neutral. We don't anchor with chronic pain. That would wither the mind. (laughs) And learning to move away from it and be with something more neutral is the art. And then when you have enough mindfulness, loving kindness, compassion, you go in a bit. But still, sometimes with some things, you wouldn't go inside. You'd stay outside and just kind of look at it from a distance, come around it. Eventually, you start getting a relationship with something that's difficult. And remember, it's just the same with joy. It's like when you're experiencing something joyful, it's really easy to get lost in it. And to, you know, lose ourselves in that and to be able to have that same mindfulness, empathetic joy, appreciating the joy, appreciating the joy rather than getting lost in it. And, you know, there's plenty of opportunity here, whether it's, you know, for some people it's the food, for some people it's, it's the trees or the whatever it is, watching an eagle. there is something that will bring about this joy and see if you can step back at first and just I appreciate the joy in my life and and see if you can drop into your body and taste that appreciation that's how we don't get addicted that's how we, we prevent the clinging or the attachment by being able to appreciate Mm, okay. This is an anonymous Inuit poem. And I think over again my small adventures when with a shore wind I drifted out in my kayak and thought I was in danger. My fears, those small ones that I thought so big, 
for all the vital things I had to get and to reach. And yet there is only one great thing, the only thing, to live to see in hunts and on journeys the great day that dawns and the light that fills the world. You pick in Inuit. Let's sit for a minute. May we care about the pain in our lives and may we appreciate the joy in our lives and hold this all with deep balance. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.